0: What we do depends on what we believe. Action is controlled by conviction. Whoever you are on the inside, it's going to show up eventually on the outside sooner or later. See, people who are perpetually miserable have generally made a series of choices that led them to that condition. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. And so this morning we come to the final chapter of the book of Philippians. We'll wrap up the sermon series next Sunday morning, but today we're in chapter 4 of the book, uh, uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And like all letters we write, you know, sometimes at the end they get a little scattered, and you just put all these little short notes on various subjects. And I think that's what's happening. There are five commands in our verses this morning, but they, they, Paul's continuing this letter, kind of feeling disjointed. But I think there's a thread through all of these. Chapter four, verse one, serves as a summary of chapter three and a link to chapter four. Using good Bible study methods, we call that a hinge. Okay, it turns from one thought to the next. And verse four of first one of chapter four is that it's a hinge. He writes, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, he's not just asking them to keep the faith. He says to stand firm in this way. He is saying that he has given them what they need to stand firm in the Lord. It's it's a warm encouragement. It's, he's saying, take everything that we've talked about in this letter, and now make sure that you live it out. Do it in this way. Take a long look at what God is doing. What have I just taught you? Where's your citizenship? Where, where is your, 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 the thought of, of what is to come? He's saying, if he'd use the illustration, hold on to your fork, because dessert's coming, and if that's true, then you better live like it because the best is yet to come, it's guaranteed. And our view of the sovereignty of God and the future of redemption, where this is all headed, should propel us to do what? To stand firm in the Lord. And so we come then in verse two to a series of of maybe random commands, but I think they're tied together with the thread of unity and joy and prayer. But without the context of this book, it's hard to tie them all together. There is a very practical side to faith. And that practical side has some attitudes which should be evident in the way that we live. Paul identifies five of them. The first one this morning, settle your differences. What are these attitudes we need to do? It starts with get along with each other. Settle your differences. Apparently there are two ladies in Philippi who were having a disagreement. One of them's name was Euodia, which means sweet smell. The other was Syntyche, whose name means friendly. We don't know much about these women or the nature of their dispute, but they were apparently well-known leaders even in the church because they, they knew who they were. And for whatever reason, sweet smell and friendly couldn't get along with each other. They were neither very sweet nor very friendly. And Paul calls them out in front of everybody. Now, if you recall, he's encouraged us to get along with each other way back in chapter 2, verse 2, when he wrote, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and of one mind. And now he comes to chapter 4, verse 2, and he writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. I wonder how they felt when someone's reading this letter from the Apostle Paul and their name comes up. 2,000 years later their names are still coming up. It is instructive that Paul doesn't give us many details, he doesn't tell us who's really the bad guy in this situation if there was one. We can't tell from his words what's going on with this problem, nothing lets us know if someone was right and someone was wrong. And instead of taking sides he just says you two need to settle this, you need to get along. Because once animosity builds up, there's usually plenty of blame on either side. Now, for me, I ask two questions at this point. The first question was, how? How are they supposed to do this? Well, these ladies are apparently genuine believers. Their names are in the book of life, in verse three. He uses the word in verse three, contended, which means they engaged in this competition. They were strong, they were determined, they were hardworking. Probably opinionated. They had their own views about how things should be done in the Philippian church. So it's easy to see how a rift might have developed. But instead of focusing on all of that, Paul says just agree with each other. Come to a common mind together. Figure this out. You don't have to see eye to eye on every detail but it does mean you have to make a personal choice to focus on the things that united them in Christ. How do you do that? What advice would we give to to them to to handle these interpersonal problems? Easy, six things. Separate your your convictions from opinions. Make sure what you believe is, is, is not just your opinion. Second, be willing to ask forgiveness. In this situation, figure out what you did wrong and deal with that side of it. Look for opportunities to show kindness in small ways. Maybe you should pray for the success of the other person. If you're Euodia, U- pray for Syntyche. Ask God to remove any bitterness from your heart. Ask somebody to hold you accountable if you need to. That's all good words. We need to take that all to heart. But we also need to consider the state of our relationships today. You can't put off that kind of tension in a church any longer. You need to make a sincere attempt to settle your disagreements. If you can't settle them completely, just try. Head in the right direction. And you know what? I have watched this happen here over and over. And Paul says, keep at it. Keep doing it. So that's the how. The other question, It's been such, chapter three is so wonderful and it's uplifting. Why now bring up these two women? Are you kidding me? Why call these two ladies out at this point in the letter? He's done some amazing exposition of the gospel and he's built his case in love and affection that they would passionately pursue Christ, that they would cultivate a, a holy discontentment, that they would work out their salvation in a, in a grace-driven effort. And he says, center your life on the gospel. Right after he's had this hold your fork moment, you know, dessert's coming, the best is yet to come. Then he calls out, Odia and Syntyche, are you serious? Why would he care if they all got along? We're headed to, to heaven. Because he knew that a divided church is a terrible witness. When people see a church with anger, with dissension, without reconciliation, where everybody holds grudges against each other, they do not see Christ as beautiful. They see your average country club or some civic organization. And we are far from that. But I think it goes deeper than that. Yes, their witness is important, but in the context of this this section of this book, you see, it is unity that produces joy. And if we insist on sticking to our guns, having to be right all the time, holding grudges, giving people what they deserve, rather than building each other up in love, you know, that kind of ground, if you, if you don't deal with, with that and, and give in to it when you've told them, you know, the right way to do things and then you're rather smug because and satisfied because you got it right, that's not going to produce any kind of deep and abiding joy. You've got to live together in church in the unity of the gospel, keeping on pursuing what it means to build each other up in love, because that's the kind of environment that is going to produce fertile soil for joy. He's not telling us to feel happy. He's not saying, well, just produce some fake feeling and put on a smile. He's encouraging us to reach agreement. And then he commands a specific action as a response to settling your differences. Number two, it's a command, he says, we need to resolve to rejoice. We need to decide we're gonna rejoice. And he makes a connection between unity and joy. He is connecting this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche with the idea that we need to be rejoicing. He says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's a very short command. but it's really hard to do. It's hard to obey consistently. You might identify with W.C. Fields who once said, I start off each day with a smile and get it over with. (laughs) But Paul keeps saying it over and over again, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. And I think it's because we tend to forget this while we're dealing with difficult people and we're upsetting, and we get upset by the problems of life. When Paul says rejoice always, he's not talking about a sense of giddiness and just a positive mental aptitude. He's not just saying, put on a happy face. Look for the silver lining. The rejoicing he has in mind is not based on our outward circumstances. And that's crucial because often our outward circumstances can be quite depressing. I mean, where was Paul when he said to rejoice? The context of this letter is he's in jail. He's in prison in Rome on trial for his life with no certainty that he's going to be released. And I didn't take that Paul didn't enjoy, you know, don't take this as he enjoyed being in prison. But he found reasons to rejoice in the midst of that difficult circumstance. And that second attitude, it's really a command Rejoice, rejoice, all the time. Mature believers rejoice in the Lord always. And just as Paul was su- surprises us, I think, by connecting this conflict between these two ladies with rejoicing, he connects it with something even more surprising. He connects that joy with it being reasonable. It's really what you're supposed to do. He goes quickly to the third command in verse four uh, in verse five. Ask God for a gentle spirit. He says in verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Scholars tell us when you try to look up what that word gentleness means in, in the original language, it's really hard to precisely translate it into English. And so they give us this orb of meaning, okay? It could be moderation. It could mean forbearance, it could mean mildness, fair-mindedness. One writer calls it the quality of inter-calmness, inner calmness, gentleness, reasonableness. The message puts it this way, make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Some said that Paul is describing a reasonable joy. Which brings me to the heart of the issue that we have with Paul at this point. Life is often very messy. Life is often hard. We've all faced those days. We were enjoying a newborn for 12 hours before they took him away from us, put him in an ambulance over an hour away because he was gonna have to have surgery or he was gonna die. Rejoice in the Lord always, really? Or you've just been screamed at because you're trying to get a couple to reconcile with each other and they don't wanna do it. And both sides pretty much hate your guts. Rejoice in the Lord always? Or you get a call to bring some comfort and perspective to a family whose patriarch has just died. You get to arrive before anybody else, including the funeral home. And you get to provide some context why your own heart is breaking. Rejoice in the Lord always? So, Paul, are you asking me to be reasonable and to rejoice? in each of those moments, it's not easy. We do not always act reasonably when we're in trouble or when we're having relational difficulties with somebody else or life gets uncertain. What do we do? We panic, we freak out, we collapse on the inside and in the chaos and the moment of that collapse, there is no reasonableness within me. There's no gentleness or joy. But Paul says there should be. The reasonableness he wants us to be known for is built on that next four words that he uses. His train of thought goes like this. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Because the Lord is at hand. Mature believers have learned to rejoice in the Lord always. Why? They can be reasonable in the midst of whatever situation they find themselves, precisely because it is the Lord who's at hand. And the basis of this joy, of this gentleness, of this, of this reasonableness is what? Doctrine, theology. The essence of this is spiritual. How can we do what Paul commands always? Well, you have to put two words together, doxa and ology. Doxa, which means belief. This is what I believe. Logos, which means words. Doxology literally means words of belief. We sing the doxology periodically. And when you sing it, it's an expression of praise that does what? It communicates doctrinal truth about God. He's the source of all blessing, He's the the creator of all creatures, He's the Trinity. And you see, sometimes in the scripture, the writers get so overwhelmed with their theology that they burst out in praise and, and that doxology. Romans 11 is an example. In verse 33, Paul gets all worked up about all of these truths, and he says, oh, the depths of the riches, and his heart overflows. If your theology does not drive you to worship God in Christ, what's the point? It's worthless. In Jeremiah 32, the, the prophet Jeremiah is in prison. I use the illustration for several reasons, but one is because if you follow Jesus, life does not always end up with you being healthy and wealthy, and everyone loving you. It doesn't work that way. Jeremiah is like Paul only centuries earlier. He's in jail for saying something that God wants him to say. And sometimes if you do what God wants you to do, you're going to end up in trouble. In Jeremiah 32, the Chaldeans, a foreign power, are about to overthrow Jerusalem. So Jeremiah, he's been preaching, repent, turn to the Lord or the Chaldeans will burn this place to the ground. And he rebukes his people over and over and over again. They get tired of listening to it. So what do they do? They throw him in jail. And faithful Jeremiah is in prison and the Chaldeans are right outside the gate. He can hear them there. It's almost over by Jeremiah 32. And when all is said and done, what's gonna happen? <laughs> Jeremiah is gonna to get to go into captivity with all the people who, who wouldn't repent. If they had just repented, God would have fixed it. But no, he gets to go with the people who put him in jail, who wouldn't listen to his, his, his call to repentance. He will suffer the consequences of their disobedience And yet he says what? Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Listen to the spirit of this man who's in a horrible situation, but whose eyes are on God and not his circumstances. This is a man who is in far more difficulty than any of us here today, most likely. And his eyes are on God, not himself. What's his response? He sings, he prays, he worships God. Sovereign God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arms. Nothing's too hard for you. He's exulting, he's erupting, his heart is in, in a doxology of praise, poetic words of belief. Where is his confidence coming from? Clearly not from his surroundings or the army that he hears outside the walls of Jerusalem. His, his power, his, his, his faith is in the sovereignty of God and the holy justice of the living almighty God. He goes on to say in verse 18, you love to show thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty Great are your purposes, and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. You performed signs and wonders in Egypt. Remember the past and continued them to this day in Israel and upon and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. Your 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 reputation. You brought your people, Israel, out of Egypt with signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You gave them this land, and, and you had sworn to give their ancestors a land flowing with milk and honey. His praise is in what? It's in the triumph of what God had done in the past. He's ascribing all power and authority and dominion to God. The Israelites may have imprisoned him. The, cap, the Chaldeans might just be about to capture him. But God is on the throne, and everything is under his control. So since everything is God's, if God wants something, what could you possibly do to stop him from getting it? If he wants your life, what are you going to do? Eat spinach and do Pilates? I mean, if he wants you, he wants you. Everything is God's. Deuteronomy 10, 14, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. The Bible says elsewhere, God breathed and the stars came into being. Can you even imagine what that means? When <sighs> the stars. Jeremiah 32, 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord the God of all mankind, is anything too hard for me? On the day of your trouble, you need to know that God is God, that nothing is too difficult for him. His love and his sovereignty are real. They are the foundation of our lives. Therefore, the mature believer is reasonable and full of joy or can be because God is near. Even in a desperate situation, even in a relational struggle, at that moment, we need to be ready with the knowledge that the God of the universe is there, that the God who is is the one who rescued me, who saved me. He's not powerless at all. He's not surprised and shocked when the doctor comes in. He's not regaling one bit to figure out what to be done in that moment. He is there and he knows. Therefore rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He's not done, we're gonna spend, you know, I don't know, three minutes, I'm packing several of the most famous verses in all of Philippians. Good luck with that. Number four, pray about everything. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. Are you kidding me? Don't just stew, you know, worrying is stewing without doing anything, and it's wrong because it assumes what? That God's not gonna take care of me, so I better worry about this, I better take care of it. It means what? You haven't welled up with doxology, with words of belief. God promised to care for us. So is He going to care for us? If I worry about it, I I don't believe that He will i got to take matters in my own hands. We all have concerns that trouble us, whether it's health or finances or a big decision or all your kids are pregnant at the same time. Come on, God, what are you doing? (laughs) Do you know for certain what's going to happen next year? No, of course you don't. Can your worry about the future change anything about what's going to happen next year? No. So why are you doing it? The past is done, the future isn't yet. I think the Savior even said, today's got enough trouble of its own. Worry and prayer are opposites, like water and fire. You can worry or pray, but if you want to stop worrying, then you need to start praying. You got to put off the worry and put on the praying. He has three pieces of a dice. Pray about everything, in everything by prayer. Pray with thanksgiving. The kryptonite to worry is... is is prayer. I mean, it's Thanksgiving. Because Thanksgiving and worry, they can't occupy the same place. Pray with expectation, he says. Present your request to God. And when you do that, the space where anxiety grows, it's going to grow with with a a simple, humble, help me, that is a prayerful of thanksgiving for the goodness of God, for His gifts, and the ultimate good gift, the gospel. And what happens, God will replace your worry with something greater, the peace that passes all understanding. It'll guard your heart, a military metaphor for soldiers guarding the city gate from the inside. God's gonna guard your heart. Number five, worry about these things. That's not exactly what the text says, I know, don't write me a note. But I use the word worry here because it really has the same function, but the focus and the results are very different. When we're anxious, we dwell on the negative side, and and that demonstrates a lack of trust in our heart. In this sense, worry, it wastes mental energy. But instead, Paul says, mentally chew on these things instead. Worry about this stuff. Verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You've got you to gotta take your mind and think about holy stuff. Sin begins in the mind, but so does holiness. Holiness. When Paul says think about such things, it's, it's a present tense. Keep on thinking about these things. Find out what is true and think about it. Find out what is lovely and force yourself to think about that. Find the virtuous and think about it. See, the maturing follower of Christ is going to have a heart that can rejoice in any circumstances because they know the Lord is near and they understand who He is and then they're going to think about things of God. Because it makes reasonableness, even in the most catastrophic of circumstances, because we remember that we have hope, we can experience joy and choose to be thankful. Don't fall to the temptation of anxiety. Go to God, humble yourself, hand over your anxieties to him. He will answer as he sovereignly sees fit. Verse nine ends this section with, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He's back to that. Put it into practice. Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. He says it over and over again. Humility, rejoice, maturity. And then he says it again. Practice these things. Do them. This isn't going to happen naturally. If you think you're just going to absorb spiritual maturity, it ain't going to happen. It requires strain. It requires us to press forward. It, causes, it, it requires us to, to work this out, which all happens by the power of the Spirit, working through the gospel, not just some natural state of affairs. You've got to practice this stuff. It is not natural to lay aside your anxiety. So it takes practice. Paul writes in Romans 12, we're, we're, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's serious practice because my mind does what? It automatically goes to the dishonorable. Someone cuts you off in traffic. (laughs) You don't assume that they were just not quite paying attention and didn't see you. No, we don't go there. We go to the dishonorable, not the honorable, which is why Paul says we have to choose to intentionally think on better things, things that line up with Christ and his gospel, None of us are strangers to loss or to sorrow. Some this morning barely have the strength to hold it together. There'll be people up with red lanyards on. We would love to pray with you, help you walk through that situation. But my hope is that God might redeem some of those things that have wounded us. Were you asking to redeem those situations in your life where you felt like he abandoned you? Maybe today you can offer up some of that pain and that doubt and cast your cares on him because he does care for you. And as we hold on to Jesus, he pulls us up from the muck and the mire of life, up from the the bitterness, up from the futility, up up from the resentment and the anger and the compromise, up from the dishonesty and the impurity. It is totally reasonable for him to do that. Do you let your actions and responses be controlled by what you believe? Are you controlled by your theology? There are moments in life where the only thought that is going to sustain us is hold on to the fork. Dessert's coming. It's got to be better than this. Father, we thank you today for the encouragement from Paul that we might... Put into practice the doctrine that he has so clearly outlined in this book. Because it is in the moment of struggle that we discover that our theology is true and real. You are near. And there will be days when we're not rejoicing, when we are full of worry. But let in those moments the Holy Spirit come and prompt our hearts To believe the words of the Bible. To believe that you are near. In Jesus' name, amen.